0: Lord, we thank you that we have just an opportunity to gather once again to look at your word. We pray that your spirit would be with us this morning. We pray that, I pray that your spirit would be with me, giving me clear words that I might explain um, your scriptures clearly. We pray that you would help us to understand how your word fits together better so that we might apply it to our lives more fully and more completely. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So the last three weeks, we've just been in the beginning chapters of Genesis, and I wonder if you thought, um, well, are we ever going to get beyond Genesis? Well, I'm here to tell you we are. The next three weeks, we are going to study the entire Old Testament. So um, it, it was kind of it's designed that way, even though it seems a little top heavy for the beginning of Genesis. But it's designed that way because we were really talking about some foundational um, concepts in Genesis. And now we can just move, now that we've got it down, right? You guys got all that down? Now we can move through the Old Testament and just see how the rest of the Old Testament fits into those concepts that we studied. This week, we're mostly going to be in the book of Exodus. Um, I'm going to move kind of quickly, and I'm going to skip some of the material that he discussed in the book, just because... We spent a whole year last year in the book of Exodus. So probably as you guys were reading some of that, um, some of it was gonna be reviewed to you anyway. So I thought maybe I would just kinda do that, go over some of it more quickly, um, work on, talk about some other things. There's gonna be a lot of material. I'm gonna do more teaching this week than we have in the past. Um, so just, if, if this is all new to you and you're thinking, oh my goodness, what is all of this? Just try focus on one thing. Think about one takeaway um, that you can take away for um, this week. And if it's not new to you, then maybe it'll either be a great review or it'll be a great opportunity for you to think more deeply in one area. Well, again, we're going to be talking about covenants this week. Um, why so much talk about covenants well, it's because God in his word talks a lot about covenants. And so we need to, when we're putting his word together and understanding it, we need to talk about covenants. Um, for our purposes and our study, we're really going to just talk about three covenants. I think Mary said last week that there's a little bit of disagreement about how many covenants really are there. Well, everybody agrees on the three covenants that we're going to talk about um, in our study. And those are the Abrahamic covenant that she talked about last week. This week, we're going to talk about the Mosaic covenant, which is also sometimes referred to as the old covenant, particularly in the New Testament, it's referred to as the old covenant. And if you're wondering where in the New Testament it's referred to as the old covenant, that's in Hebrews 8. 8 and 2 Corinthians 3:14. And then we'll also talk not as much this week but more later about the new covenant which is introduced in Jeremiah 31. So for our purposes all we need to get our hands around are three covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic or the old covenant, and the new covenant. Well, when God made covenants with his people, He used something that they were all really familiar with already, and it's an ancient Near Eastern treaty. Now, I could really like geek out and spend the next half hour going into all the details of this ancient Near Eastern treaty, but I won't do that. I just want to tell you that when God made covenants with his people, it wasn't something that they were completely unfamiliar to with. With or that was totally foreign to them. They understood it because there was this thing already out there in culture called a treaty that would be made usually between like a suzerain or a major political power power, and a vassal and a lesser political power. And they would come together and they would forge this document, a treaty. And when they came together, the suzerain in the document, it would talk about everything that he had done for the vassal and then they would talk about stipulations or things that they each needed to do and they would write all those down in the document. And usually it was the suzerain was gonna take care of the vassal and then the vassal was gonna pledge loyalty or bring tribute to the suzerain. So they each had a part to play. And then they wrote down what all the blessings were when they each did what they were supposed to and what the curses would be if they didn't do what they were suppo- weren't supposed to do. Um, and then they would have some kind of ceremony to ratify the whole thing. So, they, so when God shows up and is making covenants with his people, they're familiar with it because they've seen it before. That's, that's part of their culture, So it's very familiar. Um, But what's unusual about the Abrahamic covenant is there are some similarities to these ancient Near Eastern covenants, but there's a big difference. And that's that God is the only one who's making promises. And Mary talked about this last week. So there's a little bit of review here. He was the only one who made promises To Abraham Abraham didn't make any promises he didn't agree to anything only God did God said these are the things that I'm going to do for you Abraham Um, and I want to just spend a few minutes reviewing what those promises are and I'm going to use the whiteboard so that we can kind of think about these different covenants that we're going to see and how they fit together so is that too low for you guys If I write below this, I'm going to move it up a little bit. All right. Let's see. We'll move it up here. All right. So we have the Abrahamic covenant God promises. All right, and somebody tell me what he promises. This should be, like, so familiar to us now. What's one thing God promises? Okay, louder. Land. land. Okay, God promises land. Right. And this is, we're seeing this in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 is where we see this. Okay, what else does he promise? People. He promises people. Okay. Something. What's that? Kings will come from you. Yes. That was something we saw in Genesis 17. All right. One more thing. Then he says, he talks about blessing, right? That he's going to bless Abraham. And because God's the only one who's making the promises, there's no curses that would be enacted if Abraham were not to keep his end of the bargain, right? There's just blessing. All right, so very, this is becoming very familiar to us, isn't it? The people, the land, the blessing, and now we've added the kings. Well, this week, we are just, there's so much to see how this is all fulfilled throughout the Old Testament. We're only going to talk about, oops, wait a sec, I did that wrong. We are only going to talk about the people and the blessing. Okay? So we're going to leave the land and the kings till next week. So we'll just talk about, we'll talk about that. Okay. So God makes these promises, Genesis 12, 15, and 17, and then the people promises starts to be fulfilled in Genesis. But we immediately encounter a problem with the, bl- with the promise of people being fulfilled, don't we? And what's the problem that we encounter? I know you guys know this, so. <laughs> Abraham doesn't have any children. Sarah is barren, right? So how is this promise of people going to be fulfilled? Well, Abraham and Sarah wait, and they wait, and they keep waiting to have a child, and nothing happens. Time passes, and so they decide they're going to take things into their own hands, right? So they, Sarah, has the great idea, and this is also something that's familiar to the culture of taking your maid and giving it your maid to your husband so you can have children through your maid. So they try that. Is God pleased with their uh, their clever solution? No, He's not. He says, No, you need to trust Me. I'm the one who's going to be fulfilling this promise and providing for you. More time passes. Finally, Isaac is born. Everybody rejoices. Okay, this is the beginning of the promise. And then we run into another problem because God asks Abraham to do something with Isaac. What does he ask him to do? To sacrifice him. It's like, what is going on? But Abraham trusts him. He is willing to sacrifice Isaac. And again, God provides, doesn't he? He provides a ram and he spares Isaac from being sacrificed. Okay, so more time passes. Isaac gets married. He has Jacob and Esau. And it looks like, all right, the promises, they're coming along now. Um, But then it doesn't, the fulfillment doesn't seem to be going as it should. And what's the problem with Jacob and Esau that we run into Yes, Esau gives up his birthright. It's like, wait a second, it's supposed to go through Esau. He gives it up. Jacob gets it by trickery. Then he has to flee for his life. And then what, you know, what is going on here? Well, the Lord uses even all of that. He brings Jacob back. Jacob has 12 uh, sons and we think, all right, Twelve sons, we can do something with this, right? But then, what? and even Joseph, he's having these dreams and it's seeming kind of promising. But then it starts getting derailed again because what did the brothers do to Joseph? They sell him to slavery. He's down in Egypt. It's like, all right, maybe we lost one. Maybe we can work with these 11 up here. But then the 11, they run into a problem. And what's what's the problem they run into? famine. They are about to die out. It, it, this looks like, oh my goodness, what a total disaster this is. They are going to die out. But then they all go down to Egypt. And you guys know the story. God miraculously brings back forgiveness and reconciliation And the people are saved uh, through Joseph's provision and through the way that God had been working to set up Joseph from the very beginning. So Genesis ends, and it looks like the fulfillment of God's people is going to take off. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus 1-7. Here's basically where we are at the end of Genesis. I'll read it for us. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. All right. It looks positive, doesn't it? Not only do we have a people, but they have now multiplied. They are numerous, and the land is filled with them. So this looks really promising but we have a couple of problems. What's one of the problems that we have? Okay, a new king comes along who doesn't know Joseph, and I heard from over here in this area, they're in slavery, right? So they're a people, they're numerous, but are they God's people? No, they are not God's people. They are in slavery. They have a different master than God. Their master is Pharaoh. Involuntarily, they are serving another master, Pharaoh. So they're in slavery. So there's our first problem. Does anyone know what our second problem is? They are really far away from their land. Remember that land, the boundaries God gave them of Canaan? They're down in Egypt. So they, not only are they not serving the Lord, are able to serve the Lord, but now they're down in Egypt, far away from their land. So God, again, has a plan of how to fulfill this promise to make them his people and to get them established in his land. So he announces To the Israelites, first he raises up Moses, and then he announces to the Israelites through Moses that he has a plan to save his people. And the particular announcement of that plan comes to us in Exodus 6, particularly in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. And he says quite clearly, "'Therefore tell the Israelites,' he's telling Moses, "'I am the Lord. "'I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians "'and rescue you from slavery to them. "'I will redeem you with outstretched arm "'and great acts of judgment. "'I will take you as my people.'" I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. All right, so that's his plan. And then we see through Exodus 7, through 18, God exercising his plan. And even if you weren't in our Bible study with us last year, you probably are familiar with the plagues and how God visited plagues on the Egyptians in order to save and redeem his people. And then he brought them to the edge of the Red Sea, and he parted the Red Sea so that his people could cross. And then when the Egyptians, particularly led by Pharaoh, tried to follow, the waters came back, the Egyptian army and Pharaoh was completely destroyed and God's people were freed, they were saved. And then he brings them in Exodus 19 to the foot of Mount Sinai. And God's promises to Abraham are gonna continue to be worked out and they're gonna be worked out in the form of a covenant. And this is gonna be the mosaic or the old covenant that we see enacted because God's promises are always worked out in the context of covenants, which doesn't mean every time God makes a promise, we have a covenant, but he works out his promises in the context of covenants. So in Exodus 19, we're about to have a new covenant between God and his people. And again, it's following this ancient Near Eastern treaty formula. So take a look at the homework where you looked more specifically at Exodus Exodus 19. And let's think about how God goes about enacting this covenant. It basically in Exodus 19, 1 through 8 God is announcing to the people this covenant that he is going to enact with them. And then it takes several more chapters for the whole thing to be worked out and enacted. But here's the announcement. We have kind of the the summary version. Um, So I thought I'd start us out with that. And the first thing God does is he talks about himself and what has he done for his people. So what does he say that he's done for his people. It was, uh, I can't remember how it's worded in the homework. Yeah, what has God already done for the Israelites? What does he say there? Or what do we know? He has brought them out of the land of slavery. Yep. He has carried them on eagles' wings. Yes. Anything else that you guys saw? He has made them his own. So he starts out by reminding them of who he is and what he has done for them. And then he goes on and he tells the Israelites now what they're going to need to do in response. And it's basically summarized there in verse 5 where he calls them to obey my voice now, that's going to get all worked out. What does that look like in Exodus 20 when we have the Ten Commandments, and then in the following, he's going to give them a whole bunch of laws and commands, even commands on how they're to build the tabernacle, and all, following all of that is what it means to obey his voice. But then we come to the blessings. Exodus 19, verses 5 to 6, what are the blessings that he promises? He promises. You will, be, you will be my treasured possession amongst all peoples. Yes. What else does he promise? A kingdom of priests. Yep. Anything else that I overlooked? A holy nation. A holy nation. That's right. I knew there was one more. Yes, all of these promises. And then if we were to flip in our Bibles over to um, Exodus 23... We would see a whole list of um, more blessings. And these were particularly very concrete, tangible blessings that the Israelites would uh, get if they continued to obey the Lord. We find things like they would have abundant harvests, that there would be no sickness amongst the people, that their women wouldn't miscarry. All of these blessings would be theirs if they would continue to obey the voice of the Lord. And then there are also some curses that are outlined if they failed to obey the voice of the Lord. We don't see these in Exodus, but these are listed in Leviticus 26, if you want to go look at those later. And there's a whole list of what's going to happen to the Israelites if they are no longer obeying the Lord. Uh, And chief among those is that they're going to get kicked out of the land. So a lot of, we got the blessings and then we have the curses. So this covenant, the Mosaic or the old covenant is different than the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, it was only God who's making promises. And now in this covenant, Israel is called on. Right? Did you guys see that in your homework, the ways that we can tell this is kind of what we call a bilateral covenant, meaning that the people need to do something in response to uh, secure the ongoing blessings? What were some of the things that you saw that made you realize this was a bilateral covenant? If, the word if right there, right? If you do these, or if you indeed obey my voice. Yep, that's a big one. Anything else anybody saw? You Okay. Yep, yep. So God is giving them, this is what you need to do right here. He's spelling it out. And that was something we didn't see in the Abrahamic covenant, right? God didn't spell out, this is what you need to do. So yeah, he's really spelled that out. Anything else just in that chapter, uh, Exodus 19, did you see? Yeah, there's a response. They made a promise back. Is that what you're going to say, Chrissy? Okay. Yes, you could definitely. I decided there are, like, you could go lots of different ways, and I didn't want it to get more complicated. So there is definitely... um, a gracious element to this covenant, isn't there? Because we have seen that the Lord has saved the people already. He has brought them to this point. Um, But what I wanted to emphasize today is some of the bilateral, what the, the people need to do in response in order to distinguish it a little bit from the Abrahamic covenant. If this is all like... Way over your head. Just grab onto the idea that God has made promises in Abraham and that in the Mosaic covenant, some of those promises are being fulfilled and the people are responding to those promises. And if I would, I really love to talk about covenants. So if you want to let me know, talk more, maybe we could like all meet at the coffee shop with Chrissy and talk more about covenants. Okay, but um, for our purposes today, we are seeing that there is some element of the people needing to respond, some element of the people uh, being willing to continue to obey what the Lord has said. So why is it important to recognize this? Why am I making a big deal of this? Well, I think it helps, that, like I just said, it helps us understand the relationship between the Mosaic and the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and how they both relate to the Abrahamic Covenant, okay? That is why I have the whiteboard (laughs) because we need to draw a few things out to make this clear. Because when we're talking about these promises in the Abrahamic covenant, and we're thinking about their fulfillment, did it? Did you wonder, oh, are these fulfilled in the old covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant? Or are they filled, fulfilled in the new covenant? Because you read some things and it f- seems like they're fulfilled in the Mosaic covenant, right? So God says to Abraham, you are going to have offspring. And he means physical offspring. And then we see that offspring in Egypt. And so it seems like, yup, that's being fulfilled in the old covenant. And then in Genesis 15, about the land, God says, these are going to be the boundaries of your land. And he gives specific boundaries of Canaan. And so it seems like, yup, this is being fulfilled in the old covenant, right? And then we, but then We go to passages like Galatians 3.29, and it says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And it's like, wait a second. Now that sounds like it's being fulfilled in the new covenant. And then we even read in Genesis 17.8 that Canaan is going to be an everlasting possession And we think, wait a second, everlasting, that sounds like it might be fulfilled in the new covenant. Okay, so what's going on? Here's what's going on. The promises that God made to Abraham are being fulfilled in the Mosaic covenant and in the new covenant. It is both. Okay, so I'm going to put up here, we have the mosaic or the old covenant covenant and then we have the new covenant okay and in the mosaic covenant the people how is that fulfilled in the mosaic covenant there's a lot of them yep and are they the, do they become the israelites when they go into the promised land Yes, the people eventually becomes the Israelites, right? And then we have land, and that's the physical land of Canaan, right? Okay, so we have in the Mosaic covenant a visible fulfillment of these promises that God gave Abraham. And these visible Fulfillment is supposed to be a physical picture of what will be in the new covenant a spiritual reality. Okay, so we have a physical picture with visible fulfillment of what's going to be a spiritual reality. Because in the new covenant, these promises are also fulfilled, but they're fulfilled in a spiritual way, right? So, in the new covenant, we also have God's people. And who are God's people? In Christ. Those in Christ. Okay? So, in the old covenant... If I wanted to know who the people were God, of God were, I just went and found an Israelite. I could touch an Israelite. I knew this is a per, the person of God, right? In this room, all of us might be in Christ, but we don't know for sure. It's spiritual. It's something that the spirit does inside of us, so we can't see it. Land. Do we have a physical land today? We don't. Our hope is in heaven, okay? So (laughs) the whole idea of the old covenant for us was that as we saw and as the people saw this visible fulfillment, it would be this physical picture of something that was going to happen spiritually in the new covenant. I hope that's become a little bit clearer. I just want to I'll pause here. Does anyone have any questions or comments? Huh. It's all perfectly clear, right? Oh. Okay. Yeah, great. Maggie was just saying it was really it's so kind of the Lord, and I just echo that, isn't it? So kind of us, Him, to give this to us so that we know how to put the Old and the New Testament together so that we can see his work. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Any other questions or comments? Okay. The one thing I did want to make clear uh, is that people in the Old Testament were not saved in a different way than the people in the New Testament were saved. Okay. Everybody was saved by Christ's death on the cross in our place. Whether you were in the Old Testament and were looking forward to that and didn't know exactly how it was going to be worked out, or if we, who are now in Christ, are looking back to that and trusting in Christ's finished work on the, on the cross. We are all saved in the same way. The difference Is that the old covenant people, the Israelites, also had these tangible physical blessings from the Lord. That they were also going to have if they kept his law and his covenant. They were going to have a physical land. They were going to be the people of God. They were going to have those blessings that we talked about. Uh, in Exodus 23, of fertile land and of having children who, and not miscarrying, they would have that as well. But we're all saved in the same way. All right, why does this all matter for us today? And Maggie really got us going on that. It helps us to see how the Old and New Testament fit together. It helps us to understand and apply our Old Testaments, doesn't it? So that when we look at the Old Testament and we read about a promise in Exodus 23 that your women will not miscarry, we don't, when we miscarry, we don't say, Lord, What happened? Are you not still faithful to your promises that you gave your people? Now, we understand that those physical promises and blessings are now spiritual promises and blessings for us. So, we look to the New Testament to see what our spiritual promises and blessings are for us today. Right. Um. I think that could be really interesting, and sometimes you can do that. I would want to be careful, and I would want to always be looking in the New Testament for confirmation, because I can get really creative (laughs) and going off on like, oh, yeah, here's how it correlates. But, you know, yeah, I'd want to look, and I actually haven't thought that one through. So if you guys think that one through, let me know. That would be interesting to think about. Okay, And so when we read about the promises, those visible promises in the Old Testament, we think about spiritually, okay, what has the Lord promised to us? Whether or not there is an actual correlation or whether or not we can just go to the New Testament and find out what those promises are. Secondly, when we read about Israelites in the Old Testament who are faithfully keeping God's law despite everybody around them not keeping God's law, we can be encouraged and challenged. They are doing what everybody should have done. So I thought of just a couple of examples. Maybe you guys can think of more examples, but I thought about the spies who faithfully went to spy out the land, um, either the first time or, well, the two that were faithful in their report the first time, or when they went to Jericho and spied out the land. Um, I thought about someone like Boaz, who's being faithful in a time when others aren't, or Hannah, or the Shunammite woman who cared for Elisha. You guys have any other examples of just ordinary people in the Old Testament being faithful when others around them aren't? Abigail, yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, God's prophet, right. So yeah. Than... Yeah. She knew the truth of God's word and she was acting on it and even encouraging Gentiles to act on it. Yeah. We can think of lots of different examples. So when we come across those stories, we can be encouraged, right? They are faithfully doing what everyone else should have done. And then when we look at that long story of Israelite disobedience, we can be grieved, right? They had every reason to obey the Lord. We got that whole record of what God had done for them in Exodus. More than that, he gave them a law that was intended to be good for them. And then blessings that were gonna come to them If they would have kept that law, they were completely set up to have every blessing. So as we read over and over and over again, how they chose to disobey the Lord, we should be grieved and saddened. And then when we see God not immediately bringing the curses that he so rightly could have brought, of immediately throwing them out of the land when a wicked king led them into wickedness, but he patiently forbears with them after wicked king and wicked king and wicked king. We can look at how faithful and merciful and gracious the Lord is. And then we can think about ourselves and realize that if we were in their place, we would have done the same thing, right? None of us are going to be able to keep God's law. None of us are going to be justified by keeping the law. Well, we all know that story, that sad story of the Old Testament, how the people don't keep the law of God. And you know how early it starts? Remember our our Exodus uh, study last year? You probably even know this story. How early do the people start disobeying God's law? Yeah, Moses is still on the mountain, right? They can't even wait long enough for him to come off the mountain with the full law. They immediately, in the golden calf, create this image that they're going to bow down and worship. So right there, they have abandoned the Lord and what he has called them to do. And when we see that, it makes us wonder, doesn't it? Makes us wonder, what hope is there? How are these blessings of Abraham, how are these promises that God gave Abraham to be fulfilled if the people so quickly abandon the Lord? How is this all going to happen? Right? And we get those little glimpses along the way of how it's going to happen, don't we? And it started back in Genesis 3.15. What was the little glimpse we got in Genesis 3.15? The serpent crusher was announced. We knew in some way God was going to raise someone up to, to crush the head of uh, Satan. So we knew to be looking for this one. And how this person or this figure is going to do that, we get a little more of a picture here in Exodus, don't we? What, was, what were the, some of the things that Ro- Von Roberts told us um, we could expect this serpent crusher to be doing? How is he going to fulfill these promises for us? I'll give you a hint. What picture did we get of the Passover? A substitute, yes. A substitute was going to be provided. We had that picture of the lamb needing to be slaughtered in the place of the Israelites, the blood put on the doorpost, and that's how the angel's going to know to pass over the homes of the Israelites So we even have a picture here that it's going to involve death, blood. That's The reason blood is so important, the lifeblood, we know that blood is going to be necessary for blood to be shed in order for these promises to come true for us. This substitute, you know, I don't know if you guys are like read blog articles and stuff of this in this area, but substitutionary atonement has come under fire recently. Did you guys, are you guys aware of that? This idea that Christ died in our place, that a substitute was necessary. People are saying that's not true anymore. That is core and fundamental to the gospel, isn't it? So if you ever are in a conversation, you start hearing Christians say that it's not necessary for God to have died in our place, been our substitute on the cross, you just say, what are you talking about? What about the Passover? Take them right back to the Passover. Yeah. So God right there, he's preparing his people for the substitutionary atonement of his son. And then if we were to Uh, Move over to Leviticus. In Leviticus, we have the whole sacrificial system, right? Exodus 40, we're left with Moses. He's outside the tabernacle, and he can't even go inside. And the reason he can't go inside is because God is dwelling in the tabernacle, and God is holy, and God is not going to allow anyone to come in without a sacrifice, And so then in Leviticus, we have the sacrificial system, and we find out that the high priest is allowed to go into the most holy place, but only one day of the year, right? That's particularly in Leviticus 16, we see that, the day of the atonement. And the high priest, he has to atone for his sins with the bull and then the goat for the people's sins. So again, we've got sacrifice that has to happen. Blood sacrifice to make a way just for the high priest to be able to go into the Holy of Holies one time of a year one time of the year. And to give us a picture of the spiritual reality of what Christ is going to do on the cross. So God is laying that whole foundation for his people. He's starting to give them more and more of the picture of Genesis 3.15. What's this serpent crusher going to be like? How is he going to make these promises true? How is he going to undo the curse of of the garden? And so we're getting more now. We're finding out there a substitute is going to be required. A sacrifice is going to be required. This is why when we get to the New Testament, some people have the eyes to see, don't they? They have the eyes to see this is the one, Jesus. He is the one. This is why John, after he's seen Christ and his ministry is about to begin, John is able to say, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't know about the cross yet. He doesn't know exactly how it's going to happen, but he's recognized all the signs. What about us today? Well, again, when we read our Old Testament, we can just marvel. We can praise God. From the very beginning, he had woven all this together. From the very beginning, he had a plan, he was providing a way and i just i think it allows us to treasure more fully what christ has done for us in our place when we realize god was planning this and working this out and preparing from this from the very beginning he was planning for his son to come and to be a substitute and to be sacrificed in our place who didn't deserve to die because he had no sin to die in our place on the cross so that we who should have died, who are sinners, could have been forgiven through Christ's blood for our sin and we could become the people of God. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we do marvel at the way that you have put your scriptures together. We marvel for, at the way that you have foreborn with a sinful people, for the way that you forbore with us in our sin, for the way that you planned from the beginning for Christ to die in our place. Lord, we pray that we would treasure that truth more. We pray that that would impact the way we live our lives when we leave from this place. And Lord, we pray now for our groups, that we would have a good, fruitful discussion as we think about how to apply these truths to our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.